Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a shooting spree in Atlanta that left eight people dead, including six Asian women. The rampage occurred Tuesday at three spa locations across two counties. And authorities say the shooter was planning to continue his killing spree in Florida in a plot to attack, quote, some type of porn industry. The lone suspect, Robert Aaron Long, was arrested after a brief manhunt. There's his mugshot. He's charged with eight counts of murder and one count of aggravated assault. The shooter told investigators, according to an Atlanta sheriff who spoke at a press conference earlier today, that the attacks were not racially motivated. And of course, it is fair to ask whether we have any reason to believe or take on its face anything that an accused spree killer says. But that's what authorities are telling us as of today. So for now, that is the official word. What we can't deny, however, is that the shootings come during a time of increasing attacks, some of them deadly, against the Asian-American and Pacific Islander communities, something we've reported on extensively on this show, and something both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris herself, a member of the Asian-American Pacific Islander community, underscored today. Whatever the motivation here, I know that Asian-Americans are in very... Uh very concerned because, as you know, I've been speaking about the brutality against Asian Americans uh, for the last couple months, and I think it's, uh, it is very, very troubling. It is tragic. Uh, our country, the president and I and all of us, we grieve for the loss. We're not yet clear about the motive, but I do want to say to our Asian American community that we stand with you and understand how this has frightened and shocked and outraged. According to data by Stop AAPI Hate, there have been nearly 3,800 anti-Asian hate incidents in just the last year. 68% of those attacks, more than two-thirds, were against women. The Atlanta shootings have raised questions over what constitutes a racialized attack, especially for communities that are frequently absent in conversations on race, misogyny, and class. Authorities say the shooter claimed to have a sexual addiction and saw these spa businesses as a temptation that he needed to eliminate, culminating in Asian lives violently and brutally stolen. A crime that one Georgia County official, frankly, shockingly characterized as the gunman having a, quote, very bad day. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Blaine Alexander in Atlanta. Uh, Blaine, what's the latest you can give us? Well, Joy, we certainly got a lot of information today. I'm going to kind of tick through the points that stood out to me. The first, I want to come off of a point that you spoke about. Even though officials were quoting 
what the suspect told them as his motivation. It is important to note when we talk about motive, officials have not ruled out race as a potential factor in this, playing some sort of role in his motivation. You know, they say that they're still very early in the investigation. And despite what he says, they say that initially it does not appear that he is saying that race is a factor. But again, authorities have not ruled that out as a factor. Now, a couple of things really stood out to me. Of course, you talked about the fact that we know that there were eight people killed. Six of them were Asian women. But really what kind of stands out is that this whole thing unfolded over a stunning uh, kind of spread of land that was almost 200 miles. So where I'm standing right here in Atlanta, you see the gold spa behind me. This is one, and just here where I'm standing, only a few feet away, are two of the locations that were targeted yesterday. Those are right here uh, in the city of Atlanta, but the spree actually started about 45 minutes to the north. That's where the first shots rang out. That's where the first call came, and that's where four people were killed. And then it was several hours later when, you know, the suspect was apprehended. That was about two hours to the south of where I'm standing. So this man covered a lot of ground before he was ultimately picked up by authorities. Another thing that I do want to point out, though, is it's rather chilling. He told officials when he was apprehended and ultimately interrogated that he was headed down to Florida by his own admission to continue his spree, that he was going to do some more shooting down there. And so certainly the fact that he was apprehended rather quickly ultimately likely saved some lives. Now, a couple of things I do want to point out. You spoke about what officials are saying is his motive, and he had some sort of sexual addiction. We talk about that. I think it's very important also to add the context of in that same news conference, we heard from Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom, somebody who's very familiar to our audience. And she was asked about that, and she spoke specifically to the two spas here in Atlanta, And she said that as far as she knows and as far as Atlanta police know, these are operating as legal businesses. They're legally operating businesses. They haven't had any sort of calls or any sort of complaints about them, and they're not on APD's radar. So I do think that that's very important to point out. And then finally, Joy, you mentioned those stats from Stop AAPI Hate about the number of hate crimes happening It's something that we've seen mirrored here in the state of Georgia. In fact, that same group put out data when it comes specifically to Georgia. We've seen more than 30 of such incidents here in the state, uh, the majority of them targeted toward women, the majority of them verbal assaults. But again, we know that Georgia is an increasingly diverse state. We saw that, of course, in 2020. That, of course, means a growing Asian-American population as well. Uh, So certainly something that mirrors the national numbers as well. Joy. Uh, really quickly, Blaine, just one quick follow up on that two hour timeline. Um, do you do, do you know and is there reporting on whether or not there were already calls coming in saying that this was happening? Was this somebody who was already being sought? Because it seemed like he had a lot of time to commit a lot of uh, of killings. Very good point. So what we know is that the three shootings happened in less than an hour. So the 45 minutes to the north, uh, officials say that he committed that crime and then sped down here, down to Atlanta. So while officials were still working on that crime up there, they were getting calls for these two things right here. What happened and what allowed him to essentially be apprehended a couple of hours after that is that there seemed to be a lot of surveillance images. People up in the first shooting location, Cherokee County, were able to put out surveillance pictures. And officials say that it was actually his own family members who recognized the suspect, called authorities and said, hey, we know who that is and we want to help you bring him in. So his family members actually saw him, recognized him and worked with police to get him in custody, Joy.
Yeah, thank you very much. Blaine Alexander, great. And I really, really appreciate your reporting. Thank you. Uh, and joining me now is Connie Wan, co-founder of AAPI Women Lead, an attorney and MSNBC legal contributor, Katie Fang. And Katie, I want to start with you uh, because, there, you know, uh, I had my Howard University class today and the, the, they're young journalists in the making. And the, the question I think everybody was asking and that I think a lot of people are asking, just viewers as well, is on this subject of sort of already seeming to dismiss the idea that this was a hate crime and taking the word of the alleged shooter for it, that it was not racially motivated. That bothers a lot of people. It doesn't seem to make sense. Can you just define for us in legal terms, hate crime is a legal term. It's an enhancement on a crime, right? But is is it deter, is that something that the sheriffs should be speaking about before the full investigation is done? So twofold answer for you, Joy. One, I think it was irresponsible for the press conference that the sheriff's office did today to basically promote a narrative that could potentially be false. I mean, justice may be blind, but that doesn't mean she's stupid. And so when you put out into a potential jury pool that this shooter says that this was not racially motivated, but then you hear that the shooter's own family turned him in. Have we heard whether or not the shooter's family is going to corroborate that this was not a racially motivated crime? The cops have to do an investigation, Joy. They need to look at his social media history, his organization alliances and affiliations. But ultimately, the cops have charged him with eight counts of murder for the eight counts of the the poor victims in this case. But then the state attorney's office or the district attorney's office is going to look at the evidence as well. But that doesn't preclude the sheriff's office from actually saying that these were hate crimes that these were racially motivated and that these were the result of the killer in this case wanting to target intentionally Asian victims. I mean, Joy, this was not a random indiscriminate crime. This man got in his car and he went to these locations to target Asian women. And I saw it was so again, I think it was irresponsible for law enforcement to kind of put into public consumption today the idea that this guy has a sex addiction and he had a bad day. I think that dehumanizes our victims and it makes it problematic for a prosecution later on if a jury pool thinks, you know what, these were just sex workers. We haven't heard that either. And so to kind of affiliate right. it right now, I think from a prosecution standpoint, is really a bad idea. You know, and Connie, I think, yeah, I guess that's what bothered me, too, about this press conference is, number one, taking this alleged spree killer's word for it, um, what it is his motives were before the full investigation, and then sort of only hearing his point of view and talking about he wanted to stop, so, quote, quote, unquote, porn businesses and sort of casting um, these women as something that there's no adjudication over what was going on or what they were doing, but almost seeming to minimize them. And it also bothers me that we haven't heard a lot, you know, where are the families of these women? Are there people that should be interviewed? I mean, you know, are there TV interviews? Are there, are they talking? Are they speaking? Are the, the, the people who worked in these establishments, they seem to be just silenced and sort of cast aside as, well, you know, as Katie just said, just say, well, these were sex workers. We don't even know that that's true. So I appreciate you saying that. I think this moment is about, you know, the um, ongoing and history of hypersexualization and sexual violence against Asian women. Right. In that, alongside the hypersexualization and sexual violence is the invisibilization of our stories and our lives. This dates all the way back from the racial and colonial wars that our communities have experienced in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, in Korea. The, the sexual violence we experienced overseas, abroad, is carried over here. 
And the way that that takes place or that can actually happen is if you don't see us as human, if you see us as only as objects for your sexual issues, I think that's what they called it, right? Or his um, sexual addiction, right? You can only get away with that if you see us as um, non-human, right? So I think that's really important. I also know that, you know, these women in particular are part of a, you know, um, low wage labor workforce. That means that they were, they were yeah. unprotected. He also knew when society knows that they tend to be, you know, disposable, right? Especially if you're from a stigmatized and criminalized workforce like massage parlor workers or sex workers, right? You've, you've put us in a position, society has put us in a position by which we are extremely vulnerable to violence. And then we have the police then saying he had a good day. Again, dismissing our lives and then, you know, lifting up his own humanity as if he gets to have a good day and the rest of us get to just die. Yeah. I mean, and Katie, is it. It, so it, just the fact that this person is allegedly saying that he's, that he's fixated obviously on Asian women, that's like obvious to me, that's, that, that undercuts everything else that he's saying and fixated on their sexualization as, as Connie just said. So that, you know, it, it negates everything else that was being said. But I also do want to talk about this under protection. We had all of this increasing violence um, directed toward Asian people um, all over the country over the last year. We saw the data. Um, there was not more protection being deployed in these communities. There was not increased police protection. It, he was able to drive around for hours doing this. Um, there have been lots of threats. Atlanta has seen increases in negative hate speech toward Asian communities, also tied to the election, where Asian Americans voted mostly for Biden. So do you think that this is a case of under-policing, you know, that sort of then meets, I don't know, sort of police sort of relating in a weird way to the to the to the killer or, or humanizing the killer, I should say. I think part of the problem is Georgia just is catching up with the Joneses when it comes to hate crime laws, Joy. Just last year, as of July 1st, 2020, that's when Georgia was able to enact its hate crimes law. It was then only one of four states in the United States that did not have hate crime laws on the books. So think about this. The last hate crime law was found to be unconstitutional in 2004. So you now have a hate crimes law that's on the books. And if you look at the fact that the shooter is saying that he was targeting these particular women, then you basically meet the hate crime law statutory definition. When you target a victim for their race, their gender, their religion, their sexual orientation. Now, in Georgia, these are enhancements on the crimes. And so we'll look forward to see what the criminal investigation turns out to tell us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Yeah. 
I wish we had more time. Uh, we, we have run out of time. I don't, I, I, so we're going to have to have both of you come back. Connie Wan and Katie Fang, thank you both very much. We'll have you back because this topic obviously is not going anywhere. And up next on the readout, the Biden administration's challenge at the border with a growing surge of my, migrants and an opposition party only interested in demagoguery. The situation is undoubtedly difficult. We are working around the clock to manage it. We will also not waver in our values and our principles as a nation. Julian Castro joins me on what President Biden needs to do next. Plus, the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge, is here for her first interview since taking over a department ravaged by the previous administration. The readout continues after this. The migration uh, challenge that we are facing at the southwest border is not new. And it is a reflection of the fact that our system is broken. In his testimony today, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas was forthright, even blunt, about the challenges at the southern border, saying the immigration system is broken and needs a legislative solution. It comes after he reported yesterday that the number of apprehensions at the border this year is on track to exceed the surge of 2019 and possibly reach a 20-year high. While the Biden administration is slowly dismantling the harsh asylum policies of his predecessor, they say they're still trying to back single, they're still turning back single adults and some families, just not unaccompanied children. Now, of course, Republicans have been quick to demagogue the issue for their political benefit. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy traveled to an El Paso border facility on Monday to blame the president for the influx of migrants. And a Republican super PAC is now running ads accusing Biden of opening the border, echoing similar claims from GOP lawmakers who should know better. They're all charges Biden summarily rejected in his interview with ABC News. The idea that Joe Biden said come because uh, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do they're what Trump did. This. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They're not. The adults are being sent back, number one. Number two, what do you do with an unaccompanied child that comes to the border? Do you repeat what Trump did? Do you take them from their mothers to move them away, hold them in cells, et cetera? We're not doing that. I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, and it's not going to take a whole long time, is to be able to apply for asylum in place. So don't leave your town or city or community. Secretary Mayorkas already pushed back on the accusation that the recent uptick in border apprehensions represents a crisis, given what happened under the last administration. Take a listen. I agree with you. It is going to be uh, the most we've seen in 20 years. You may call that only a challenge, but I call that a crisis. A crisis is when a nation is willing to rip a nine-year-old child out of the hands of his or her parent and separate that family to deter future migration. That, to me, is a humanitarian crisis. Joining me now, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Obama administration and former mayor of San Antonio, Texas, Julian Castro. And Secretary Castro, thank you for being here. You're in a unique position uh, to discuss this as a Texan, as somebody who ran HUD and also as a former mayor of a Texas city. Do you have a sense, can you kind of get your arms around 
What is the pull right now? Um, the New York Times has some reporting that um, some smugglers, you know, human smugglers may be telling migrants, look, this is the time to come. Biden is a better guy than Trump. He's going to let people through, that that is getting people to come. Um, do, you, do you know what the pull is and do you know what the push is from, you know, the triangle countries? I think, you know, what what we saw over the last several years is Donald Trump through policies like We're remain in Mexico. Trouble. There we go. Policies hold like on, remain in Mexico. Your audio together. Your, your, your audio is a little choppy. So hold on, guys, just for one second. Let's just make sure that your audio is coming through. Start again, if you could. I, so Trump left our immigration system in tatters through policies like remain in Mexico, through metering, through Title 42, which basically allowed him to expel thousands of people to deny them entry, including over 13,000 children. So he created a pent up demand, this bubble of people who want to come in and claim asylum. And that's part of what we're seeing. Uh, it's true that we've had uh, you know, people presenting themselves in waves before we saw that under President Obama. We saw it in 2019 under Donald Trump. But Trump weakened our ability to handle these situations. And so basically, uh, Joe Biden is left to pick up the pieces of a human rights catastrophe that Donald Trump left at our doorstep. Now, the difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to immigration is that with Joe Biden, you have someone who is competent. You have an administration that is actually taking the steps necessary to solve this challenge. Uh, you heard Secretary Mayorkas, but among other things, they've increased the interagency cooperation. They have uh, cut through a lot of the red tape to actually get these children who are unaccompanied uh, into acceptable housing facilities and then more quickly get them to host families so that they're with their sponsor host families in the country instead of in one of these facilities. They also have done the compassionate thing which is not to say no, not to reject an eight-year-old child or a 10-year-old child when they present themselves at the border unaccompanied. I think that reflects our values as Americans. Uh, I don't consider this a crisis. I agree that it is a challenge. It is something that uh, can be effectively managed and that the administration is effectively managing. Well, you know, what, 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 of course, the right does, they're sort of back in uh, sort of, you know, their kind of default mode, which is to portray these people as, you know, potentially terrorists. You heard Lindsey Graham basically say these children are going to grow up to be terrorists, um, to do the brown scare, to say that Democrats just want to add more brown people because they know if they become citizens, they'll vote for Democrats. Like all of the things that they use to gin up their base of mainly white Americans who, white working class Americans who, you know, fear that their jobs are all going to be taken by these people. Who are, I mean, they're, they're doing what they normally do. I want to play just a little bit of a, a Fox News uh, reporter asking Jen Psaki some questions. Take a listen. Is there a limit or a cap to the number of unaccompanied minors that are going to be allowed into the U.S.? Uh, a limit or a cap? A should, cap? So should we send some kids who are 10 back at a certain point? Is that what you're asking me? I'm, I'm not setting the policy here. I'm just asking you what the Biden administration's policy is. Our policy continues to be we're not going to send a 10-year-old back across the border. That was the policy of the last administration. That's not our policy here. 
And, you know, there's a poll out today. Reuters has a poll saying 22 percent of Republicans said in a poll this month they consider immigration to be the most important problem, up from 7 percent. I mean, it's back to the kind of the same thing that, you know, of a, there is a lack of, of sort of compassion on the other side. It's just a fear that more brown people will come. How how can the Biden administration manage that? Because the other side isn't providing a political solution or offering to get on board immigration reform. They're just saying, be afraid of these brown people. Well, you're right, Joe. I mean, this is part of their playbook. It's something that we've seen so many times before. It is fear mongering. And this time they're doing it because they can't argue with the Biden administration in terms of serving the needs of everyday Americans. The American Rescue Plan was just passed. Vaccine distribution is is going along very, very well compared to what it was under the Trump administration. People are more confident now in the economy and also that we're going to get this past this pandemic. So what do they do? They go to their red meat issue for their base and they try and dehumanize uh, these folks. Uh, many times, uh, you know, a 12 year old child, 16 year old child that just is desperately trying to seek a better life. What the Biden administration can continue to do is uh, to manage this effectively and to do it consistently with our values as a country, do it compassionately, with common sense, humanely. Uh, and we have to understand that, uh, that Trump did everything that he could to leave our immigration system in tatters so that it would be difficult to actually manage this. But you know, as unprecedented as his actions were, as cruel as his actions were, when you consider how the Biden administration is handling this situation compared to the Trump administration, they're doing it more effectively, but they're also doing it more humanely. And so I have confidence that they're going to be able to handle this going forward. Yeah, I mean, they're not when a family shows up and you just literally take the child from them as they're screaming and say that's going to deter future people like that's as cruel as it gets. Very quickly, we're going to have your successor, uh, Marsha Fudge, coming up, who's going to be HUD secretary. Do you have any advice for her real quick? Any advice for her uh, that she's getting this job that you used to have? Uh, yeah, my number one piece of advice is fight for as many resources for affordable housing as possible, which I know she's going to do because she's a great champion of it because America sorely needs it out there. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Julian Castro, uh, Secretary Castro, thank you so much. Really appreciate you. And up next, as I just went ahead and spilled the beans, a readout exclusive, our new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge, is here to talk about turning that department around after four years of the Florida man and his cronies trying to tear it all apart. You do not want to miss it. Stay with us. Over the last four years, Donald Trump and his cronies found ways to damage nearly every facet of our government. No stone was left unturned and almost no American was left untrammeled. For instance, nearly five million households have relied on housing assistance through the Department of Housing and Urban Development over the past four years. It's been a lifeline for low income white and minority families to keep a roof over their heads. And leave it to the Florida man to put someone with absolutely no housing policy experience to oversee the agency. One Dr. Ben Carson, celebrated neurosurgeon. Unfortunately for the country, that lack of experience was readily apparent in how Carson's gifted hands ran, or should I say ran into the ground, this essential cabinet department. Instead of looking for more funds to help Americans solve their housing problems, he pushed for steep cuts to the same type of housing assistance programs that Carson said his family benefited from when he was growing up. 
At the same time, he wanted to raise the rent on low-income Americans who were getting housing assistance, in some cases by three times the amount. Carson attempted to roll back the agency's fair housing rules put in place by the Obama administration that were designed to fight discrimination against black Americans. And instead of fixing low-income housing, as he pledged to do, the number of HUD apartments cited for unsafe and unhealthy living conditions rose. So who has Ben Carson been helping or who was Ben Carson helping during all that time? Well, we do know that Carson's own family members enjoyed some of the perks of his position. Ben Carson's son, Ben Jr., who was not a federal employee, couldn't stop helping out daddy, organizing a listening tour in Baltimore and inviting companies who he potentially had business dealings with to participate. And then there was Eric Trump's wedding planner, Lynn Patton, who somehow found herself overseeing billions of federal dollars leading HUD's New York and New Jersey offices. But what uh, we should have, what should we have expected under President Don LaRange, who was campaigning last year on supposedly saving the suburbs from the scourge of public housing and also weirdly from Senator Cory Booker. Now, as the country faces growing public a growing public housing crisis, there's at least an adult back in charge. And joining me next in her first interview since her confirmation, the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge. My first priority as secretary would be to alleviate that crisis and get people the support they need to come back from the edge. We need to expand resources for HUD's programs to people who are eligible. We need to deliver on the administration's commitments on improving the quality, safety, and accessibility of affordable housing. We need to make the dream of home ownership a reality and the security and wealth creation that comes with it. It needs to be a reality for all Americans. Joining me now is the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and the first African-American woman to lead the department in more than 40 years. Marsha Fudge, uh, congratulations on the gig. Um, thank you so much for spending uh, your first uh, primetime interview uh, with us to this evening. Uh, I, I, I got to make you laugh. We talked about Ben Carson in the setup. Uh, only 16 Republicans voted to confirm you in the United States Senate. Um, that's That means that 34 more Republicans thought Ben Carson the you know neurosurgeon with no experience was more experienced than you used to be a mayor. You've been at that. that, that that's not a question. That's just a comment. Uh, let's Thank talk you. about the needs uh, in terms in terms of low income housing. Um, the National Low Income Housing Coalition stats that we have here: seven point two million Americans, um, seven two point million, seven point two million more affordable housing units are needed in this country. Seventy five percent of extremely low income families pay more than half of their income in rent. One in four extremely low income families need assistance to to to, to rent an apartment. What can HUD do about that? You know, Joy, it, this is the perfect time for me to be in this role. As a result of the American Rescue Plan, HUD can do an awful lot. In this bill, people are only talking about the $1,400 checks that are going to families and to their children. But there is $40 billion, $40 billion in this legislation for housing assistance. There's more than $20 billion for rental assistance, more than $10 billion for homeowners assistance. And Joy, it is so important right now because as we look at what has happened over the last four years, you look at the fact that only, as you say, one in four people who qualify even have an opportunity to be uh, housed in this country and to get help from HUD. In the morning, we're going to release a, a report. It's called the Annual Homeless Assessment Report that is going to show that in 2020, on a single, any single night, more than 580,000 people in this country were homeless. 
That was before COVID, Joy. So the, the crisis is real. So what we're going to do now is find ways through these resources to help at minimum 30,000 uh, people off the streets right away. We are going to assist cities and, and, and communities to purchase housing for people who are on the street. We are going to assist homeowners in staying in their homes and renters staying in their apartments. There is enough money here now to assist us in making sure that the situation doesn't get any worse. But also, Joy, and this is a big thing, the racial wealth gap is larger now than it was 50 years ago. So we're going to be focusing on assisting home buyers with uh, down payment assistance, with technical assistance, uh, talking with them about making sure they have access to credit, because we historically have been left out, whether it be in the rental market, the home buying market. This is our opportunity to make a real difference in the lives of people we serve. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, you, and you talked about the bill, there's already some blowback uh, in the state of Iowa. Governor, the Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, imminently could be signing a bill um, that would essentially block, um, you know, people being able to use housing vouchers. Um, and here's what it is. The Morton Register reports that this bill allowing it would allow Iowa landlords to reject applicants for using Section 8. Um, the Republicans are calling it a win for property rights of landowners, saying that they don't have to take the federal housing assistance vouchers. Democrats are basically saying it would allow more discrimination um, that you could cover uh, under the vouchers, but really use it to discriminate against uh, on race. How do you beat back that kind of negative politics? Well, let me just say this, Joy. As a lawyer, what I know is that fair housing is the law. It is the law of the land. We passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968. We also know that discriminatory zoning is a violation of the law. Now, if they want to get into a fight about it, we're ready to fight them about it. Because what the president has said to me is that we are going to find resources and build new housing. You can't build it when communities are saying, not in my backyard. You cannot house people when they are purposely making it more difficult for people to find housing. It is a violation of the law. And so is it, are you talking about potential lawsuits um, in cases where states and uh pass laws like this? Are you, are you saying that these could be the subject of lawsuits? It would certainly be my recommendation that we do it, but it is a discussion that I would not need to have with the Department of Justice. But I would clearly believe that we are within our rights to demand that these communities cooperate with what we are doing. Absolutely. And you had... You had during the uh, Trump uh, sort of the tail end of the Trump presidency in, in his campaign, really focusing on the suburbs and sort of scaring people about public housing, scaring people that somehow Cory Booker was coming to get him. I, I really don't understand. I've never understood that. He's a really nice guy. Um, but making people afraid that anything that, you know, something like HUD, an agency like HUD would do, essentially would bring more people of color into the neighborhood. And, and somehow that is a bad thing. Um, do you think that at this point, HUD can kind of be a part of changing that narrative? Or is that a narrative that you just have to fight through? No, I think that we're going to be a part of changing it. It was just a pattern. It was a part of his practice and pattern to uh, say to people outside of the normal core urban communities, you don't want people like me in your in your backyard. I mean, it was just his practice of devaluing public housing, 
which he did. I mean, it is very clear that he did it. When we look at the budget for 2021, Ben Carson requested a 15 percent across the board cut, a cut. In the four years that he was in office, he lost 20 percent of the staff. So what we have now is a HUD that is understaffed and overworked in a situation that the crisis is growing larger and more critical every day. They actually don't care about housing. Uh, I mean, I don't think that the administration did anything to show us that it was a priority. It is a priority with this administration and is a priority with me as well. You also have um, in your state, uh, the attorney general has sued to block part of the one point nine trillion dollar relief bill. Um, And Republican Dave Yost argues that the bill unlawfully restricts the state's ability to use the money for tax cuts. They want to use the money for tax cuts instead of giving it to people who need it. Your thoughts. So anyone who would say that people in need are less important than those who have much which is what Dave Yost is saying. We don't want to help people who need help. We want to help people who don't need any help. We don't want to do the most for those who have the least. What we want to do is make rich people richer. It is the most despicable thing that I have seen in a long time. Why would you turn down money to help the people that you serve? I'm from Ohio. I think it's a great place to to live. But my goal is to be sure that we treat every single individual in that state with the dignity and respect they deserve. Every single person in this country should have a roof over their head. And so, Dave Yost, uh, all I can say to you is that you are very misguided in what you are doing. And it's really a shame that you would once again vilify people who are in need. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Secretary Marsha Fudd, you can see already uh, the passion uh, for this issue. Uh, Good luck to you. And thank you so much for being here this evening. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joyce. All right. And now, uh, thank you. Cheers. Okay. well, up next, Republicans are now admitting, oops, they bungled on COVID relief, handing President Biden a major victory in his first few months in office. Okay. Okay. Raise your hand if you think they've learned anything from this. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. We'll be right back. President Biden has announced a new stop on his COVID relief tour next week. On the anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, he'll head to Ohio, which just so happens to have a Senate vacancy in 2022. This comes as the Treasury Department announced that approximately 90 million stimulus payments have been issued. The Biden administration is leaning into the American Rescue Plan, which, according to a new political morning console poll, is incredibly popular. 72% of the public supports the plan. That same poll shows 55% of Americans feel the country is moving in the right direction. Not surprisingly, Politico is reporting that Republicans are now feeling like they've lost the messaging war. 
Caught flat-footed, Republicans are now mounting an ex post facto war against the money. Florida Senator Rick Scott, who used to be the governor of Florida, told the current Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, to return it. Seriously, just send it back, which DeSantis promptly declined to do because Republicans, they may vote no, but they always take the dough. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that he would bring forward the Senate's version of the For the People Act, a voting reform and anti-corruption bill. Last night, President Biden signaled he was open to changing the Senate's filibuster rules to make way for this kind of legislation. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate. And that is that a filibuster, you had to stand up and command the floor. Once you stop talking, you lost that and someone could move in and say, I moved the question of. So you got to work for the filibuster. So you're for that reform. You're for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be. While this news marks a shift for the president, Senate Democrats still have some work to do within their own caucus. Roughly nine Democratic senators have been reluctant to scrap the 60-vote filibuster threshold. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is one of them. Earlier, he told reporters that not much could change his mind on the subject, not even Republican obstruction of the signature voting bill. Now, we've invited Senator Manchin on this show multiple times. We asked him again tonight, and he declined. For more, I'm joined by Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist. All right, uh, Charlie, I want to start with you on the the, the stimulus bill before we get to uh, Joe Manchin. Um, this is a popular bill. People like getting checks in the mail. Republicans' answer is, send the money back. We wanted to use the money for tax cuts, so we'll sue. You can't use it to get housing. Nah. Like, I mean, it, 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 this should have been a no-brainer. Money's popular. You didn't want to send the money out. What are they supposed to do? What, what can they do now? Well, Nothing? I don't, I don't get it. We, well, they're, they're behind the eight ball. I mean, looking down the barrel of these 70% approval ratings on not just this bill, but the infrastructure bill that's going to be coming along, um, you know, possibility of tax hikes for people above 400000 And this is what you get after four years of, of Donald Trump, who obviously was not interested in fiscal restraint. I mean, you know, during those last few weeks when he wasn't plotting a coup, he was endorsing sending out checks to Americans. So. Um, I think that a lot of the Republicans were just simply going to were simply hoping that you'd have 2009 all over again, that the public would turn against this. But they're not. And again, and this is not an original thought, but the tell uh, has been the fact that they are much more interested in the culture war issues than talking about yes. smaller government, fiscal restraint. Um, I think they, they know that it would be hypocritical for them to be talking about the debt and the deficit at this point. But they've clearly lost the narrative. Um, and you, you're kind of seeing how they're flailing in the, in the post-Trump era. Yeah, you, their, their whole slogan should just be, look, a brown child. That should just be it. That's all that they should put on. Um, let's talk about this uh, this voting yeah. rights bill that appears to be now being Joe Manchin'd. Um, here's a senator, the senator and reverend Raphael Warnock um, calling for essentially its passage and calling for us to preserve voting rights. Some politicians did not approve of the choice made by the majority of voters in a hard-fought election in which each side got the chance to make its case to the voters. And rather than adjusting their agenda, rather than changing their message, they're busy trying to change the rules. We are witnessing right now a massive and unabashed assault on voting rights unlike anything we've ever seen since the Jim Crow era. And yet, Michelle Goldberg, the answer from Joe Manchin and about eight other senators is 
I and we don't care. We want our old filibuster from the old Dixiecrat era, and we don't care what anyone says. I am shocked by that. Are you? You know, I don't know if I'm shocked by it, but I'm certainly despairing about it um, because, you know, if we don't fix voting rights in this country, if we don't have some sort of democracy reform, um, it doesn't matter if Democrats continue to muster the majority of the votes as they did in this last election. They are going to lose power to a minority faction and a minority faction that is governing in the kind of extreme culture war fashion that it is precisely because they don't have to appeal to the majority of the voters. So democracy reform, it's not just that I think it would help, you know, help help the majority of people in this country um, be governed as they choose. It would also moderate some of the lunacy that we see from the Republican Party. I'm at least hopeful that because Joe Manchin has shown some openness to reforming elements of the filibuster, to bringing back the talking filibuster, you know, as has Joe Biden. And maybe they do that. And then they see that Biden's agenda is still being stymied. And then maybe that inspires them to go a little bit further. We'll see. We shall see. And Joe Manchin is welcome to come on the show anytime um, that he's ready. Let's talk about this vote um, for congressional gold medals for the Capitol Police. Now, this, uh, Charlie, combines everything Republicans are supposed to love. Police <laughs> being honored, the gold medal for police, you know, gold is everything that they need. What? 12 of them voted no. 12 of them. And out of the 12, 11 of them were people who also voted to overturn the election. And the complaint was that the language included called the people who invaded our capital a mob of insurrectionists and that the capital was called the Temple of American Democracy. Apparently, that was a problem for folks. Can you explain this to me, please? Yeah, this is the hardcore seditionist caucus. Um, you know, they, they, they take, make a list of those those 12 folks. Hey, by the way, can I just say something about the, the, the filibuster? Because I'm not so despairing about all of this. I mean, I think that, sure. you know, if in fact the issue is the John Lewis Restoration of the Voting Rights Act, I, I think there might be a possibility of a carve out. Look, um, uh, uh, Republicans decided that getting their Supreme Court nominees was so important they were going to eliminate the filibuster. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed with only 52 votes. And uh, Democrats, could say, you know what, restoring democracy is uh, in, in the states is worth a carve out that would restore democracy in the Senate. And for a bill like that, a narrow carve out, um, I, I think there's a possibility. Remember, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 with 79 votes in the U.S. Senate. It, it is it, we're in a weird moment where it's not bipartisan. Not only did it get 79 votes, but then it was it was reauthorized under President Bush. Republicans had no problem with it. I mean, this is a mountain, I think, for Democrats to die on. You know, challenge Republicans. Are yeah. you going to go? Will you vote against the John Lewis Act? And if they don't, I think a lot of those people who support the filibuster might be willing to uh, go along with a, a, a carve out. Okay, your your thoughts on that, Michelle? I mean, I, you know, from your lips to God's ear, I certainly think that, you know, I, I hope that that's the case. I just it seems to me that the Republican caucus is pretty united um, in opposition to voting rights and to, you know, democracy, frankly. I don't see, you know, so again, I, I, I hope you're right. And part of the problem, part of this kind of Democratic doom loop that we're in is that you yeah. could say, yes, I yeah. challenge you to vote against the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But again, when you are right. only beholden to a minority faction, taking unpopular votes doesn't That's hurt right. you as much. 
And they say, they say, yeah, we're voting against the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That's what I worry about, too. Charlie Sykes, Michelle Goldberg, you guys are great. Thank you. That's tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.